Well, good morning, Fellowship. Uh, welcome. Uh, if you're here for the first time, whether you're online in Platinum, wherever you are hearing this word, uh, joining with us physically uh, uh, or virtually, we are so thankful. I love that uh, sermon intro. Isn't that video fantastic? We have so many creative people at Fellowship, and I'm deeply thankful. You know, as we think about the whole question of uh, suffering that was mentioned a little bit earlier in the video, uh, that recurring question that Genesis is answering, if God is good, why is there suffering? We've got to keep taking people to rewind the movie, go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, as we're going to do today. So let's pray because we're really dealing with real issues. Where These are the chapters that are explaining why the world is the way it is in all its glory and its grief. So let's pray as we think about these things. Father in heaven, we're just so thankful that we've, we've come into your world as though we were coming into a movie halfway through. And we need to go back to the beginnings to, to work out exactly what you have said, how it should have been, how it turned out, why it turned out the way it is. And Father, we pray and thank you, actually, that you've not lost uh, allowed us to get lost in in unanswered questions, that there are real questions, hard questions, hard answers to those questions. But Father, we want to build a, a framework that comes from you. We want to think your thoughts after you. And whether we're believers or not, whether we're searching or inquiring, we pray, give us all soft hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my six-year-old granddaughter, Gracie, said to her mummy, she said, mummy, Uh, do we uh, Aboriginal? I'll try to say it the way she said it. Do we call uh, our Australian Aboriginals call that because they're the originals? See the little player, Aboriginal, original. And I thought that was very clever because she picked up on the sense that the Australian Aboriginals are the original custodians of my former homeland. Uh, and in a way, what we're doing today is going back to the original parents, Adam and Eve, to the original temptation, to the original parents of humanity. Because Adam and Eve aren't simply the first couple or the first marriage. They are the heads of humanity. And within 60 seconds, the choices that they make will transform the world that we know in the way we know it. Part glory, part ruin. Let's look, though, at the beginning where God blessed Adam and Eve. They were placed in the Garden of Eden as a prince and princess in paradise. There they had no sin, no shame, no guilt, no fear. They were right with God, right with each other, right with creation. It was perfect one day, perfect the next. Then the serpent came to tempt. We know him from Revelation 12 to be Satan, so enters Satan. In Genesis 3, 1, we read, he said to the woman, he the serpent, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Now, notice Satan's strategy. It's the same now as it always was. He's not very original. Firstly, the isolation. He isolates Eve, targets her, separating her from her husband in the conversation. He uses the power of suggestion. There's very little telling often just questions. And then he offers another interpretation. Uh, did God really say? Now, getting Eve to second guess that what she probably heard from her husband, Adam, that God had spoken through him to her, 
Satan is now getting her to reconsider what God had exactly said, creating doubt in her original understanding. Sound familiar? And then he deliberately misquotes scripture and misquotes God when he says, you must not, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, that is a blatant lie from the father of lies. Why? Because his goal is to misrepresent God, presenting him as harsh and mean. God doesn't want your good. Actually, what God actually said was that you could eat freely from any tree except one. Don't eat that one. That won't be good for you. I always think it's the opposite to beaches in Australia. You know, beaches in Australia can go off in kilometers. You can swim anywhere. But the lifeguards say you can only swim between the flags. And I think that's the very opposite to Eden. In Eden, you can eat of any tree, just not that one. That won't do you good. (coughs) Excuse me. And then Eve takes the bait. And you see the deception of it. She's drawn into the conversation with Satan. Now Satan is setting the agenda. Instead of ruling over him, he is ruling over her. And notice how Eve mimics Satan. Firstly, Eve misquotes God. God says, you will die if you eat of the tree. She says, you will die even if you touch the tree. God says, you can eat freely of any tree. She quotes God and deletes the word freely, all the time sliding God's character, making him him sound harsh and mean. God says, you will certainly die if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She deletes the word certainly, making judgment less likely. Whether she's conscious of it or not, she is slowly being seduced into siding with Satan. She keeps God at a distance. She doesn't give God his personal name. She uses the same name of God that Satan does, Elohim, not Yahweh, God's personal name. Again, creating space. In in a way that we can sometimes have lots of conversations about God, but hesitant to bring in the name Jesus. It's so personal, so specific. And through it all, Eve fails to take a stand. She fails to put Satan in his place. She fails to do what Jesus did in the wilderness when he confronted Satan. When he confronted Satan, when Peter said, discouraged him from going to the cross, and Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. She doesn't assault the lies of Satan with the truth of God. Like, hey, serpent, why are you impugning God with bad motives? Why are you um, treating God as though he were no good? I mean, God has only ever been good to me. He placed me in this garden. He's given me my everything I have, my life, my breath, and everything else. He has placed me in the garden with a good husband. And what exactly have you done for me? Nothing. You are a liar. So get the hell out of here. Well, she doesn't. She should have said that, I think. Evicted God out of, uh, evicted Satan out of, out, of, out, of, out of the garden. Like us all, she's allowed another voice to influence her and set the agenda. So I wonder, who's influencing you in your life? Who have you allowed your ear to tune into? Who has your ear? Because there's always someone whom you're deferring to. It might be a singer, an artist, a lecturer, an influencer, a blogger, a podcaster, an unhelpful preacher, an unhelpful friend. Who are you opening yourself up to? 
Because remember, friends, every day is a battle of ideas, a battle for the mind. And you are commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to take every prisoner for Christ. Then comes Satan's assault on God in verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Now understand the strategy of Satan behind every one of our sins is very simple. He gets you to doubt the word of God. He gets you to doubt the goodness of God. And the first casualty when that happens is always the same, the judgment of God. That's the first thing to go. Whenever the church stops believing in the word of God and the goodness of God, they'll always remove the judgment of God every time. You will not die is the lie. There will be no consequences. You can get away with it. No one needs to know. As if God is just scrolling through our life like we're an Instagram uh, uh, account. Think about it. What exactly has Satan ever done for us to believe him? Nothing. What has God ever done to not call on us to believe in him? The logic of sin is downright stupidity, but we fall for it every time. Look at what God says in verse three, uh, 5, or actually what Satan says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, with Satan, every lie is always wrapped up in a half-truth. Just enough for you to think that it's true and for me to think it's true. Now, understand, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not some magical tree, and we're not told it's an apple, okay? So it, we're just told it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And to take of this tree is to play God. That's the issue here. Uh, they already knew, Adam and Eve already knew right from wrong. It was wrong to eat of that tree. So they already knew that in Genesis 2. What they're doing here is they're deciding for themselves what is right and wrong. So normal is this, is that we actually pay Disney to actually teach our kids exactly the same thing. We all know, who loves the movie Frozen? Isn't that a great movie? It's fantastic. Listen to what Elsa sings, though, in it. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. <laughs> and then we become enslaved to the very freedom that we choose. Now, with the half-truths rolling around, uh, the half-truths of Satan rolling around Eve's head, she takes a second look at that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And let's, uh, we can imagine, you know, she's clearly got a bad case of FOMO, fear of missing out. Her appetite, that, oh, that food looks good. Her imaginations, oh, I like what I'm seeing. Her mind, I want to know the power, what it is to experience the power of that kind of wisdom that God has that determines yes and no, right from wrong, good from evil. Like an advertising company, the, the devil is always, always making you discontent with who, who you have and what you have. Always wanting us to covet, never wanting us to be content. Always wanting us to covet, never wanting us to be content with what we have. You deserve this pleasure. You deserve this pleasure. It gets you to feel sorry for yourself, entitled, so you can cross that line because you're missing out. Let's guess what's going on in Eve's mind. 
Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I never noticed that tree before quite the way. But now that Satan has mentioned it, there it is. It's a beautiful looking tree. It's a gorgeous looking tree. It's a sexy tree. I'd like to eat of that tree. I mean, God really wants me to be happy and happiness is the most important thing in the world. Clearly, I won't be a complete human being unless I access that tree. Because let's face it, I need to be true to myself. And anyway, no one has the right to tell me how to live. I'm a human being. I've got rights. I demand the right to access that tree. I will eat of that tree. Oh, no, I have eaten of that tree. Verse 6a. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And in grabbing the fruit, she was grabbing for equality with God playing God, determining what is right and what is wrong, believing the lie that she is wiser than God, that old chestnut. (laughs) And then she compounds the error by now drawing and bringing her husband in on the sin. The one she was created to help, she now hinders. She saw, she took, she gave. The three verbs used of God himself in Genesis 1 and 2. Verse 6. Oh, and by the way, it's not like Adam was out riding horses while all this was happening. Where exactly was Adam? Let's have a look. Verse 6. She also gave some to her husband who, finish the sentence, was also with her and he ate it. Adam was with her the whole time. Says nothing, does nothing. Just lets it all unravel. First, the silence of Adam, then the hiding of Adam. Because with sin comes guilt and shame and fear. We know this. This is our story. Adam and Eve's story is playing out every human story again and again and again. Once he would have been so excited to hear God walking in the cool of the day. Hey, Eve, God's going to be walking with us again. We're going to see him again face to face. But now the thought of him walking in the cool of the day is absolutely terrifying. Why? Because they know now death is coming. Consequences. Because they know God will keep his word. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear, shame, guilt always leads to cover up. We'll always try to cover it up somehow, some way. They hide from God using the very trees that he had given to bless them. They hide from each other using the very fig leaves that he had given them. They could cover their nakedness. They just couldn't quite cover their shame. They can't. It's interesting, isn't it? They were naked before and had no shame. Now they couldn't trust their nakedness, their vulnerability with this other person. Why? Because that other person now was playing God like them and they were no longer trustworthy. And we've been hiding ever since, haven't we, from each other and from God. Been running away in our own little versions Because we know there's something deeply wrong within us. So what we most fear about ourselves is true. Where are you, Adam? 
Where are you, Adam? God's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because he's holding this man responsible. The flip side of being made in the image of God is that God treats humans with full responsibility. You notice how God goes straight to them. Technically, Eve might have sinned first, but he goes straight for the man because he's the head of humanity. Look at verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, that's a simple yes or no answer, really. But the sin of Adam now is shifting from firstly the silence, then the hiding, now the blaming. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Man does what men do best, (laughs) blame. It's her fault. It's your fault. But I tell you whose fault it isn't. It's not my fault. You know, it's funny how you can live with the flaws of others if only they would name them and own them. It's when they don't that it's so hard to live with. But imagine a different story. Imagine a different Adam. The story could have been played out so differently. Imagine as Eve was talking to the serpent, Adam could see and he says, Eve, what are you doing, darling? I mean, that thing is a liar. (laughs) He he just could have spoken into it. Or as she was about to reach for the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he could have gently grabbed her hand and said, Please, darling, don't do this. If you eat of that tree, you are going to die. But he doesn't. Imagine if she offered him the fruit and he at that point said, oh, precious, I love you, but I love God more. And I'm not going to be a party to this sin. Or even after they both fell in sin, he could have said, I have not led you you well. Let us fall to our knees now and ask for mercy and perhaps God will show us grace. But at no point does Adam open his mouth and say anything. At no point does he step in. At no point does he lovingly lead. So brothers, can I say, can I plead with you? No more of the silence. No more of the hiding and excuses. No more of the blaming. Be the men of God that he has called us to be, that you want to be, that God wants us to be. I mean, how many times has my wife said to me something, I'm half listening, just, and I say yes, basically to shut her up, (laughs) I'll be blunt, and then she goes ahead and does what I've authorised to do, and it's all fouled up, and then I blame her, (laughs) when I was the one who said yes. Sound familiar? (laughs) Now, of course, blaming is not a male problem. Adam blames Eve, but who does Eve blame? The serpent. It's a whole reversal of the order here. And we've been buck passing ever since. And I reckon the Christian version of this is that we blame God for putting the serpent in the garden. What's that about? <laughs> or we blame God for, for you know, making Adam and Eve the heads of humanity because if I was in the garden, it would be a different story. 
The story of Adam and Eve, it is the story of every human. Uh, my mother tells me the story of a, um, the priest actually told her from her church when she was growing up, how there was this couple in this kingdom who were always complaining that every time they suffered, it was because if only Adam and Eve didn't sin, we wouldn't have these problems. If only Adam and Eve didn't, we wouldn't have these problems. So the king of the kingdom found out about this couple. So he invited them to his palace, had a big banquet put on the table for them and said, you can eat anything on the table. You can see where this is going. Going. You can eat anything on the table. Just don't eat the meal under the silver bowl. I'll, I'll go away. I'll be back in about half an hour. But enjoy. Anyway, they couldn't help themselves. They're eating the meal and they just couldn't help themselves but wonder what was underneath the silver bowl. So they lifted it up and two doves flew away. So the, the king eventually comes in and he notices the doves fly, flying and he says, so not so different from Adam and Eve after all, eh? <laughs> Of course not. You know, biblical Christianity is quite unique amongst all world religions. It really treats humans very responsible. It really locates our ch the, the, the seriousness of our choices. Uh, in an ancient creation story called the Epic of Gilgamesh, what happens there is the snake eats the tree of life, and that's why humans die. So it has nothing to do with human sin at all. It's the devil's fault. <laughs> I got a Chinese friend and he said to me, you know, Ray, if Adam was Chinese, we wouldn't have had the fall. I said, what's that? Why is that? He said, well, we would have eaten the snake. Problem solved. <laughs> Problem solved. I think he was joking when he said it. And now the judgment, because God always keeps his word the judgment of Adam and Eve, and the world. You know, whenever God reimposes his will on rebellion, it always comes with a quota of pain. Satan will know that. He's cursed, and he's on a highway to hell. And pain, as though it were like cancer, it spreads through every corner of life. So the great joy of giving birth now is scarred with what one woman said, horrendous pain. And many of you women know that. The land is cursed, which means work is frustrating and painful and hard and sometimes futile. Pictured here with thorns and, and weeds and and. And you put all that effort in and you get very little result. And marriage, oh, marriage, the gift of marriage, where the couple was once naked and had no shame. Now marriage is a, is a, is a war zone between the sexes where women will try to dominate men and men will dominate women. There's an interesting side point, but it's worth saying. Adam is blamed for listening to his wife in the garden. But outside the garden, every man is blamed for not listening to his wife <laughs> by God himself. 1 Peter 3 says that. I had a friend of mine. His wife left him, took the kids. I caught up with him. I said, uh, brother, what happened? He said, you know that verse in 1 Peter 3 about live with understanding with your wife? I said, yeah. He said, I didn't do it. Inside the garden... Adam sinned by listening to his wife outside the garden. We met. It's a side point. It's not really tied to the passage, but I thought I'd say it. <laughs> now, we are 
allowed to push back on the effects of the fall, eh? That's why things like medicine are good things. Uh, reducing suffering, minimising pain, taking you know, a, a pain reliever for your headache. These are good things. I thank God for epidurals and pethidine when my wife was delivering our children. These are good things. Um, I thank God for antidepressants. They play their part. Not, not the solution, but they play a part in relieving people because our brain is filled with chemicals. And, and if they're out of kilter, sometimes they need to be kind of managed a little bit better for a time. But no drug is going to relieve the pain of life. Life is hard. You know that, I know that. Suffering is normal. Death is everywhere. This is the world we were born in. When people ask the question, if God is good, why is there suffering? We've always got to take them to Genesis 3 to explain the story that we're in. Look at verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. That is determining what is good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was one tree, but there was that tree of life and access to that tree determined your, your eternity. We live outside the garden and after the fall. When, when Adam and Eve dethroned God, they functionally dethroned humans. Now Satan is described as the prince of this world and the God of this age. Now we are slaves to sin and death. For dust you are, finish it, and dust you will return. It's going to be said pretty much at every funeral. Last century we saw mass slaughters. Six million Jews in World War II, 20 million Russians, one million Armenians. The atrocities in Rwanda, Cambodia, the list goes on. It's, it's all in the millions. But I tell you, the great Holocaust was the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve reached for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of that decision, death has now fallen upon every human being, young or old. As someone put it, history is like a conveyor belt of corpses. Wow. Remember Denzel Washington uh, getting a script for Training Day, the movie that he ended up winning in his second Academy Award. And in the, uh, and he read, it's really about a very bad cop, a very bad cop. And he said, when he, when he got the script, this is what he said to the director. I will play the role, but the main character has to die at the end of the film. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. I thought, there's a man who knows his Bible. And it's not just Adam, it's every human, isn't it? We experience three kind of deaths. And it's good to know there are three kind of deaths. There is spiritual death. That's why we need to be born again. There is physical death. That's why we need to be resurrected. And then there is a second death, hell. That's why we need to be forgiven. Adam is like a cut flower. Looks pretty for the time being. But in the end, he will breathe his last. Now, what I love is, as you read through Genesis 3 to 11 now, what we're going to see is firstly sin, then judgment, and then the grace of God that always follows the judgment of God. This is why we love our God, because the Bible could have ended at Genesis 3 and we would not have existed, and God would have been well within his rights to do it. But not our God, he's a loving God. 
The grace of God always follows the judgment of God. I love what Paul says in Romans. Where, finish the sentence. And yet, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We will see the spread of sin. We will see the spread of the severity of judgment. And then we're going to see over Genesis 3 to 11, the spread of grace intensifying. It's like grace is outstepping sin. And you see it even in this chapter. You see Adam spiritually dying straight away, but allowed to live for 930 years. Thank you, God. We see Eve allowed to give birth to child after child because she will be the mother of every living being. We will see how God in his kindness will provide fur in the place of those pathetic fig leaves to cover their shame. But what chance do we have to re-enter paradise? Seriously. You know, how many sins did it take Adam before he was deemed unfit to be in the presence of God? Was it 300,000? No. Was it 30,000? Was it 3,000? Was it, was it 300 sins? Was it 30 sins? Was it three sins? Was it two? Just one act of rebellion and God in his holiness and justice deemed Adam and Eve unfit to be in his presence and cast them out. Wow. Well, if it only took them one sin to get cast out, how on earth are the rest of us going to get back in? I mean, if I sin three times a day, which is a conservative estimate, that's a thousand in a year. Well, I just turned 63. That's 63,000 acts of rebellion against God. And it took Adam only one to be evicted. And yet in Genesis 3, amidst the, the deception and the temptation and the sin and the suffering, we find this beautiful of beautiful promises. It's really the first gospel proclamation in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. And I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman Eve, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is God speaking to Satan. That a battle is predicted. A, a war in the future is going to take place. Within that will come a saviour who will come to save. We know him as Christ the Lord, the last Adam. That's how Paul describes him. He will crush Satan and he will usher in God's kingdom. The battle will take place in another garden concerning another tree. That other garden was Gethsemane when Jesus says, Abba, Father, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours be done. And his decision to go to the cross was locked in. And that tree, of course, is the cross of Christ. 1 Peter puts it this way. 1 Peter 2.24, Christ, speaking of Christ, he himself bore or carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. I love what someone said at Creekside. They said, Adam may have abandoned Eve by blaming her, but Christ will never abandon his bride, the church. Isn't that great? Adam may have abandoned Eve, but Christ will never abandon his bride, the church. Rather than blaming us 
and leaving us there in our guilt and sin and shame. He takes our blame. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame upon himself on that cross. That there is a way now back into paradise. There is a way, and it is through another tree of life called the cross. That's the tree of life that allows us to live forever. And let me tell you, it wasn't the nails that pinned Jesus to the cross. It was our sins. And it wasn't uh, those nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was God's love for us. As Christ willingly took upon himself the shame and the blame and the pain of our sins upon himself that we may be forgiven. And there at the cross on that tree of life that you and I look to for hope and forgiveness, what does Jesus do? But turns to the thief of the cross who says to him, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise, Eden. And there the tree of life is issuing forth forgiveness and life everlasting. Friends, there have only ever been two people who have ever made a difference in this world. Adam, who flushed us down the toilet, <laughs> and Christ, who set us free. Adam, who brought death and condemnation and, and disobedience, and, and Christ, the last Adam, who brought in perfect obedience, justification, and life everlasting. It took Adam 60 seconds to change this world. And it can take you 60 seconds, even less, to change your life by attaching yourself to this Christ who was crucified on that tree of life for you. Do you not think today is the day to do that? For some of you, it is exactly the day. Today is the day of salvation to receive the offer of forgiveness, to cling to the Christ, the cross of Christ, to receive the forgiveness and to be a new creation and to know that paradise is awaiting you where it will be perfect one day, perfect the next. If you think today's the day, if, you, if in your heart you know today's the day to say yes, why don't you pray this prayer with me? But I'm going to at the end broaden it up and I'm going to have a special prayer for us men that will be the men that Adam failed to be. So let's all pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we want to say thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life of obedience, undoing the damage that Adam has caused. We want to praise you, Lord God, that at the cross, our sins completely forgiven, our shame and guilt completely removed. We want to thank you that we are now a new creation, and we ask you, Lord, help us by the power of your spirit to enable us to live under the lordship of Christ, that we may say no to sin and that we would resist the lies of the father of lies. Oh, Lord, help us to not be naive. Help us to not be blind to the schemes of the evil one. May we never doubt that your word is true. May we never deny that you are good. And Lord, today... We pray for the men of fellowship, single, married, divorced, separated, widowed. We pray for them and we pray, Lord, that they will refuse the temptation to be silent, that they will be able to be empowered, to be bold for Jesus. 
We pray for them, Lord, that they will confess and not retreat into excuses and blaming, that they will be the man of God that you have called them to be, that they will be the men of God that they long to be. Lord, we pray today that this church will be filled with men of God who will be Christ-like husbands, God-like fathers, faithful, trustworthy brothers who will live above reproach. And we thank you for our dear sisters, Lord. And we pray that they will seek to be more like Jesus. And we thank you for their faithfulness. Make us a church filled with godly men and women who will not fall prey to the deceit and the lies of Satan and that we will shine forth before a watching world here in Dubai. Have mercy upon us, we pray. Empower us by the power of Jesus' name. And all the saints said, amen indeed. Let's praise our awesome God.